0: This is what the word of the Lord says to us today. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. And we ask that by your spirit, that your word would be made effective in our lives today. We need you, we need to hear from you, we need to be more like you. And so, we ask that those things would be true today. In Christ's name and to his glory, amen. So, one of these verses, chapter 3, verse 1, have a glance at it there. That's probably the, I mean, I think we would say that's the most famous verse in this entire book. Chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. It's pretty well known because the gospel writers report that this verse is referring to a specific person, John the Baptist. And you remember John the Baptist from the gospels, all of the gospels speak about him. John the Baptist was the iconic prophet whom God sent to Israel right before Jesus began proclaiming the gospel and performing miracles. He was a very strange man. He was dressed very strangely. He ate ridiculous food and he lived in a ridiculous place. So if we were to put it in a 21st century Idaho context, he would wear elk skins, and he would eat rattlesnakes seasoned with sage, and he would live down at the Bruno Sand Dunes. That would be kind of like if he, was, uh, the, if he came right now, that's, that's sort of what it would look like, you know. He preached a very strange message, too. It was a tough message. It was a very confrontational message, surprisingly. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming right now that was the gospel proclamation of John the Baptist not you know he was not an encouraging kind of pastor you know he was uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming right now and yet people came to him from all around hundreds of people poured out into the wilderness to hear this strange prophet which leads us kind of to the question why would they do that I mean would you walk, walk you didn't have cars you know would you walk to Bruno Dunes to hear some guy tell you to repent I mean, what was the big attraction? Why would so many people come out and hear this? Well, it wasn't because they were some kind of primitive people without entertainment, you know, who, had, who didn't have enough books. They didn't own an Xbox. Um, it wasn't because of that, because there was plenty to do in first century Palestine. They had plenty of entertainment, believe me. Um, it wasn't that because they didn't have public speakers, They had tons of them We know that they had tons of public speakers Practically any day of the week You could go out and hear some guy speaking on the street You didn't even have to walk out All the way to Bruno Dunes to do it There were even people who claimed to be prophets Speaking from God And sometimes they were just about as weird as John was So his appeal wasn't about Some kind of like freak show Entertainment value sort of thing So why would so many people be interested In hearing what John the Baptist Had to say To understand that we have to sort of under we have to sort of recognize the special relationship between John the Baptist and the the prophet who wrote these verses the prophet Malachi there's a relationship between the two so Malachi is always the last book in the Old Testament and it's because Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament era when Malachi wrote this book God went silent His people didn't hear from him for 400 years. And as we look back, we can see how God was active at that time, preserving his people, preparing the world for the coming of his son. But in the moment, it would have been hard for them to see those things because God was saying nothing, not a single word, for 400 years. Well, I mean, truthfully, maybe Israel didn't mind. That God was silent, and the, I mean, because at this point they really weren't paying a lot of attention to Him anyway. But I would guess that for some people, for the ones who really wanted to hear from God, it was awfully unsettling. You know, is the the silence must have been deafening. But then, four hundred years after Malachi, certainly long enough to make you wonder if you would ever hear from God again. For the first time, God finally speaks again. And his first messenger, he chooses this particular weirdo, John the Baptist, you see. That's the the special relationship. So why are people going to hear uh, John? Why are they willing to hike out to Bruno Dunes to hear somebody say repent? Because it was something for some people they'd been waiting centuries to hear from God again. And this—that's why, in the, to the gospel writers, this, this verse, chapter three, verse one in Malachi is like a flashing neon sign pointing to John. God said he was going to send someone, and sure enough, that's what he did. So, some people have pointed out that John the Baptist, in the sort of in the person of John the Baptist, the two eras converge. Right? He marks the beginning of the new era of Jesus. And yet, in a way, he's the last of the pre Christ prophets, preparing the way for the Messiah himself. So, that's the special relationship between John the Baptist and Malachi. It's fitting then, given John's unique status as the new voice of God, the first one since Malachi to speak again uh, for God, it's fitting then that John the Baptist preached the first sermon in the New Testament. Did you know that? It wasn't Jesus who preached the first sermon recorded. It wasn't any of the apostles. It was John the Baptist who preaches the first sermon recorded in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 3, and I'll read it to you. It's pretty short. This is the sermon. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones sons of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, who is mightier than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry his he will baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire that's the first sermon in the new testament those are i mean frankly those are <clears throat> to 21st century american ears those are unbelievably harsh words I mean, imagine hiking all the way out to Bruno to hear God's prophet. For the first time, God is speaking again in 400 years, only for that to be what he said. I mean, if you, how would you feel if you came to church today and that was the sermon? I mean, would you come back? You might, I mean, maybe you wouldn't come back. I'm sure there's a part of us that wouldn't want to. But what if those difficult words were like the first few notes of a song that you instantly recognized and as soon as you heard that opening line you had to hear the rest what if it was like that my kids learned Beethoven's 5th in school and now they go around singing it you know Beethoven's 5th how does it go dun 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 you know four notes with four notes Beethoven is able to draw the listener into the piece and when you hear those four notes you, you just can't help but want to hear how he develops it over and over and over again uh, those four notes are repeated hundreds of times across the piece. So I think I think it might be something like that. John's hard words would be difficult for anyone to swallow. But what if you felt like you needed to listen? Well, apparently that's how it went. Because a bunch of people felt that way about it, and, be, and they kept coming out to hear more and hear more and hear more from John the Baptist. Well, I think it's really interesting how similar John's sermon and the book of Malachi are. In the themes and the things that he's calling, the things that are spoken, uh, the, the, the sermons are, are really similar. <clears throat> the particular turns of phrase are different, but the substance of the message is the same. And it goes something like this. In both of the sermons, the sermon of John, the sermon of Malachi, in both of them, the people of God are in great danger. They think that they will live well if they follow their own wisdom and they reject God's. But the truth is actually the opposite. Rejecting God's wisdom leads only to chaos and destruction. But in following him, there is true and good life. That's the substance of the message. It's a different prophet, same message. But even though there were 400 years between them, God's message didn't really change. And as we look in detail at these verses, I think we'll see that God gives us the same kind of warnings that he was giving Israel at that time. Okay, so let's look in detail at the passage. Today in this passage, I think you'll see, we're going to focus in on looking at two things. And the first one is this, sometimes conversations with God can be dangerous sometimes conversations with God can be dangerous. And the second thing is, sometimes encounters with God can be painful. Those are the two things that we will see in this, in this in these verses that we've already read. Okay, let's begin with the first. Sometimes conversations with God can be dangerous. So this passage begins with a conversation in chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17 says... You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? There's a little dialogue between God and his people in chapter 2, verse 17. That's actually one of the main features of the book of Malachi. Malachi writes these little mini, mini conversations between God and his people all throughout the book. There's a whole series of them. Each conversation is built around a few questions. In some of the conversations, God is asking things of his people. And in other conversations, the people are questioning God. The questions in all of these conversations have a very consistent tone. All throughout, they're more like accusations than questions. The person's not really trying to gain new information. It's an an accusation being made. So in the opening lines of the book of Malachi, for example, this is how the whole book begins. God says... I love you. And the people of Israel respond by saying, How? How have you loved us? It's not really a question. Israel's not trying to learn an answer. They're accusing God. God says, I love you. And their reply through question is to say, No, you don't. You don't love us. If you loved us, you would do... Fill in the blank. If you really really loved us, you would do... Fill in the blank. That's kind of the pattern of Israel's accusations of God in their questions, including in our passage here. Here in verse 17, God says, you are wearying me. And the people reply, what did we ever do to you? You know? uh, They turn turn it right around on him. They, They turn it around and basically are saying to him, no, you're wearying us. You know, we're tired of you doing what you're doing. You need to stop it. That's basically what the people are saying to God. If you were just, then you would do what we want. But you aren't doing what we want, so you must not be just, and you must not be good. You say you are, but we are just simply not buying it. And so the bottom line is, you'd better shape up God. That's the line of questioning that's offered here. It's not really a, really a question. It's an accusation. Do you see how they've completely flipped the whole thing around? What's happening in this entire book? What is this entire book really all about? God sends his messenger to warn his people that they are doing permanent damage to their relationships. Their relationships with each other and their relationships with God himself. God is cautioning them, pleading with them, shaking them to snap out of it. He's trying to save them from their own self-destructive ways. But whatever he says, they just turn it back around on him throughout the whole book. Whatever he says, they turn it back around on him. They, they, it's like this. God, they say to God, you think we're awful? Yeah, well, have you seen yourself? You're even worse. You know what it sounds like? It sounds just like, I and mean, you've, you've all probably heard conversations like this. It sounds just like a married couple that is right on the verge of getting divorced. Right on the cusp. You, th- you think I'm awful? Yeah, well, have you looked in the mirror? Because you're way worse than me. The worst thing is this. They're using the very things that God is doing to love them as evidence that he doesn't love them. God has sent things into their lives to unmask their own idolatry and self-centeredness. He's sent them circumstances and people, and he has done things in their lives to reveal to them the true state of their hearts, to wake them up. Certainly, sometimes the love of God can be hard. That's because sometimes we need it to be. And yet in this case, the people point at the very acts of love that God is sending to them, and and they say, See? We knew you didn't love us. The very things God's doing to love them become evidence that he doesn't. Well, I mean, the truth is, with these accusations, the people are playing with fire. Is back to our first point sometimes conversations with God can be dangerous years ago a friend told me uh, about taking the swim test to enlist in the Navy the only catch was he didn't know how to swim and so to pass he had to tread water for three minutes a bunch of guys jump in a the pool they have a countdown thing and then there's a buzzer at the end and if you can stay afloat for the three minutes then you pass the test and so he, even though he had no idea what he was doing, he was determined to pass the test. And so he, with everybody else, he leapt into the pool and he began wildly swinging his limbs all around. As he made it to the, about, the, about the first minute, he thought, Wow, I'm doing it. I'm going to pass the test. Only at that time, he felt something whack him in the back of the head. And as he turned his head, he saw the drill instructor hitting him in the head with a metal pole. And he thought, he's trying to make it hard on me but I'll show him and he just kept flailing and trying to stay afloat only the instructor kept hitting him with the pole I can't let it faze me he thought he was determined to keep going and pass the test and after a short time the instructor stopped hitting him with the pole and he stayed afloat long enough the buzzer went off and he passed the test and when he got out of the water it turned out that they thought he was drowning and they were trying to get him to grab the pole and that's why they had the pole out into the water <laughs> well even though that story is humorous it really reminds me of what both the but of what the people that both Malachi and John the Baptist uh, were speaking to what, what all of those people did it really reminds me of them they were drowning and they had no idea they had no idea how death's hands were wrapped around their throat and slowly squeezing. And very soon they would not be able to breathe. And God was reaching out to them with a pole and saying, Grab the pole. And they wouldn't take the pole. And so, to try to get them to take the pole, he started hitting them with it. And they're like, Why are you hitting me with the pole? God was doing it to save their lives. And over and over again, He hit them with the pole, and they refused to grab it. No, no, we won't. I've got to do this on my own. Well, what eventually happens if you don't grab the pole? Well, I mean, if you're really drowning, if you're really really drowning, you know, whether you think you are or not, if you're really drowning, pretty soon you black out. And then it's all over. And that's what these conversations with God are like in the book of Malachi. God keeps reaching out to them. He keeps saying I love you Come back Let me show you how we can fix this Sometimes his words are gentle They really are He starts the book off by saying I love you It's the first thing God says in the book Other times God's words are rough But they're rough because they have to be The gentle words haven't worked and he, But the thing is he loves too much to give up He's going to keep hitting them with the pole What makes these conversations with God dangerous is that you can't keep throwing it back up in his face. The people of God can't keep throwing it back up in his face and saying, no, it's your fault, you're the problem. And the problem is the, the more we say that, the more we say it's your fault, you're the problem. The more we say that, the more we believe it. And the more we believe it, the closer to death we move. I think I should be clear about something here. Sometimes conversations with God can be dangerous, but they don't have to be. Even the hard conversations don't have to be dangerous. I mean, the Bible shows us that there are times to ask God, to tell God, to even yell and scream and cry at God. We see all those things in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. And so sometimes life in this fallen world is downright awful, and the the reality that we see in the Bible is that God can totally handle our emotions. You know, that's all fine. Is it, but there's a huge difference between wrestling with God and rejecting Him. There's a huge difference between wrestling with God and rejecting Him. It's one thing to ask with pain in our hearts and tears in our eyes, why? It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to accuse God by saying, you're the problem here. You pretend to be good, but I know the truth. And it's that you're evil. There's a huge gap between those two things. I mean, it, apart from God, we wouldn't even know what good and evil are. We wouldn't, even know what, we wouldn't even have categories for good and evil. And the one thing that I know is this. God has only been patient and faithful and kind to me. He isn't the problem in our relationship. He isn't the problem I am. That's the truth. All that leads us to the second part of the passage, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We'll read those again real quick. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years." Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So we've already talked about this some. But the second thing to notice in this passage is that sometimes encounters with God are painful. I mean, these verses 1 through 5, they take a really surprising twist. I mean, the first verse is really optimistic, right? I mean, chapter 3, verse 1 is really optimistic. Behold, he's coming. We'll all be saved. Phew, right? But then verses 2 through 5 don't sound nearly so sweet. Who can stand his soap? Who can endure his fire? Yes, he is coming, says verse 1. But it's a drawing near for judgment, says verse 5. And God himself will testify in the court of justice against all those people, those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's verse 5. So yikes. I mean, you read through verses 1 through 5, and the first one sounds so optimistic and the last one doesn't. Uh, And you think to yourself, what kind of salvation is this anyway? I mean, if you saw this advertisement on a billboard as you're driving along the highway. Behold, he is coming, and everyone will be purified. Would you rush out to the store and buy that? You know. The truth is, you should. Because all of us need it. All of us need it. We all need him to come near to us. Yes, even to come near to us for judgment. We all need that. Don't miss... What is going on in these verses. Just because we have a predisposition. As 21st century Americans. Against this kind of thing. Don't miss what's going on here. All of the soap. All of the fire. It's not there to destroy us. God is coming to make us. Not to break us. To remake us. Into what we are supposed to be. and to what we've always. Wanted to be. So number two was sometimes encounters with God are painful but that's because we need it sometimes we need it here's an example do you ever use hand sanitizer we don't think of it usually think of it this way but when we cut or scrape ourselves we come to something of a fork in the road you get to choose one of the two paths do you want the sharp pain now or the deep pain later a couple drops of Hanatizer, as my kids call it, uh, a couple drops of that will likely feel downright awful for a few seconds. But I'd rather have that pain than an infection. It's an awful lot what, what God is doing with the people in Malachi here. And it's an awful lot like what he's doing with us. He knows that the things that have entered our souls will infect us, they will scar us, they will warp us and they will eventually kill us. He knows that what has entered our souls will eventually kill us. But God will not stop intervening for his people. Even when they're shrieking and pushing the sanitizer bottle away, he knows this is the pain that saves. That's what God's doing. Like a good parent, he insists on it. Something must be done to save his people. And as he works in us, the, the bacteria begin to die, the rot begins to be cleaned out, we become more and more pure. And the percentage of gold and silver slowly ticks upward as he burns away our impurities. And so each day we find ourselves at that fork in the road. Do you believe that God can use every circumstance for our good? Even this one. Even the one I'm in right now. Do you believe that it's possible for Him to do that? Do you believe that even now, God is building you up, not tearing you down, and making you into something infinitely beautiful? Do you believe that's what He's doing? Or, do you believe that God is the problem? Do you believe that he's so evil and treacherous and untrustworthy? Do you believe that there's no way he could ever use this pain for my good? Or do you think if he would only leave you alone to do it your way, then everything would be okay? That's the fork in the road. And you can't have it both ways. But you see, I mean, in this passage, verse one is really good news. It's not fake good news. It's really good news. Behold, He is coming. Sometimes conversations with Him can be really hard, and sometimes, sometimes encounters with Him can be really painful. But here's here's what. Believe this: God is good, and we can trust Him. That's the truth. Believe in that. Amen.